Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is a Literary Studies channel in the New Books Network. I'm Natalia, and today I'm speaking with Gleb Tsipurski about his recent publication, Socialist Fun, Youth, Consumption, and State-Sponsored Popular Culture in the Soviet Union, 1945-1970. Hello, Gleb. Hi, Natalia. Thank you so much for inviting me to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. So before we start the discussion of your recent publication, do you mind if you uh, tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Happy to share. So the listeners will probably be interested to know that I came from the former Soviet Union, from the Republic of Moldova, from uh, the city that was called Kishinev when I left before the collapse of the Soviet Union and is now called Chisinau. My family left when I was 10 and they immigrated with me along, you know, didn't get a decision on that topic, uh, to New York City. I grew up in New York City and visited Russian, the Russian area of New York City, Brighton Beach quite often. I didn't live mm-hmm. there. But I grew up there. I went to New York University. Then I went to Harvard. Then I went to UNC Chapel Hill, where I got my degree under Donald Rally. And he's a great mentor and scholar. So I owe a lot to him. So he is, yeah, so he's really great. I studied Soviet history. And the history, that was my content topic, mm-hmm. so the thing I focused on, I focused from the theoretical frameworks I used were frameworks mainly drawn from behavioral science, things like psychology, uh, behavioral economics, history of emotions, and things like this, which we'll get in more depth when we talk about the book. Then once I got my degree, I went to... Ohio State. So I got a job at Ohio State University as a professor here. And this is where I teach right now. So this is a little bit of my academic and personal background. So um, this is quite a fascinating story. So I believe uh, your recent publication is closely connected with your memories from your past. Yes, indeed it is. I remember, uh, so the book is called Socialist Fun. And I remember it's about state-sponsored cultural activities in the Soviet Union. 
as a kid, when I was uh, I left when I was ten, I remember participating in these activities. Mm-hmm. Now I focused on college age and high school age activities, but I was a child, so it was not quite the same activities. They were a little bit different for children, but I remember participating in them. There was an activity called yoga, for example, <laughs> where uh, you remember it too, Natalia, where people went. There were various clubs that were sponsored by the government and the Soviet Union. And my dad was an engineer. He was a chief engineer at the factory. So we went to his factory, and they had this giant celebration for New Year's Day, which is the major mm-hmm. celebration in the Soviet Union, as opposed to Christmas here. Mm-hmm. And so that was the big celebration. We went to this Christmas tree, and there was uh, the Russian equivalent of Santa Claus mm-hmm. named Ded Maroz, mm-hmm. and presents and gifts and so on. And this was all provided by the state, by financial sponsorship from the state and from the factory and so on. So I had these memories. And this is just one episode of many that I participated in. I, there are photographs of me going to on parades and you know waving little red flags and so on. I think I have mm-hmm. some I have some photographs of similar things in the front page of the book. And um, <laughs> we yeah. actually so that's kind of my story, but yeah. Another interesting part of the story is that my wife, she's also from the former Soviet Union, and she participated in many of these activities, and so did her dad. Mm-hmm. So her dad used to be a musician, oh. and he is featured in the book, actually. So I had some interviews with him oh, really? in the book, and, and had some, yeah, so we can talk about this when we talk about the book. Mm-hmm. He's the guy from Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. who I talk about uh, in one of the chapters of the book, and he wrote a song, I think it's on page, um, you know, 190, 194, 192. There are some pictures of him, Boris Vishnevkin. Mm-hmm. So my wife is Agnes Vishnevkin. <laughs> and Boris Vishnevkin, he, he was a singer in some of these clubs. And he did some things that I thought were quite worthy of including in the book. And he had some pictures in the book. So that's kind of my personal story and my wife's story. How they made it book. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a story for for this book. Yeah, I yeah. was actually fascinated by the uh, title of the book, Socialist Fun, and I believe it's quite an intriguing title for the research. And uh, I believe you undertook a very um, unexpected approach to illuminate some new aspects of the uh, USSR history. So, if you don't mind, uh, I would like to uh, cite a paragraph from your um, book. It's uh, 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 to the pages um, uh, 221. Socialist fund was serious business for Soviet uh, citizens, especially young people. State-sponsored popular culture provided a central venue in which to fulfill their cultural consumption desires, to express themselves through cultural production, to socialize with others in their free time, to form friendship and romantic bonds, and to enjoy themselves. For the the authorities, club activities offered the opportunity to instill officially prescribed cultural values and tastes, to ensure social control and appropriate leisure, and to satisfy popular desires and thereby gain legitimacy. More broadly, the party state intended state-sponsored popular culture to help build a socialist alternative version of modernity. I, I believe there are a lot of layers that you put into this uh, research. So socialist fun is not only some time to um, uh, 
uh, just for uh, the citizens to enjoy themselves, but also there are layers uh, that um, 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 convey some ideological um, ideas, some ideological programs, uh, as well as uh, uh, political agendas. So, um, could you uh, tell us a little bit these layers of this complicated issue about a socialist fund? Sure. Um, it's a big topic. <laughs> yes. you know, for people who for people who want to read this, who want to know about this in depth, again, check out the book "Socialist Fund." <laughs> <laughs> yes, but let, in broad, in brief, mm-hmm. let's talk about the term itself. So you mm-hmm. said the term itself is quite complex. When I use this term, it's a sort of a deliberately provocative term because many people perceive socialism as the very opposite of fun. Right. They perceive, you know, what is fun about socialism? Socialism is typically portrayed as drab, dreary, you know, not really enjoyable at all. And like the people are just going to work and, you know, there's snow, there's mud, there's dirt. and People are just in factories and they don't have enough food and they stand in line and that's kind of all they do. That's the typical portrayal of socialism. But that is really a false portrayal because it lies by omission. Mm-hmm. It omits really important aspects of what socialism was about. You know, if people had those sorts of lies, of lives, the government of the Soviet Union would not last nearly so long. I mean, it's lasted for, for three generations, three generations of people. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of time. They wouldn't have been able to last that long if it was just repression and authoritarianism and drabness. People can't survive in those sorts of conditions for nearly that long. And they don't develop that form of loyalty. You know, I've spoke to people, I had interviews with them, who had no reason to lie. I mean, Mm -hmm. the Soviet Union was over. Uh, I talked to people in Russia and like I said, elsewhere, people who are in the United States right now, people who left the Soviet Union because they didn't like it. But you know what those people said? Mm-hmm. They said that there were many aspects of the Soviet Union that they did like, and that really motivated them, and that they had enjoyed. And the club aspects was one of the most fundamentally important ones that they enjoyed, and that they really regret that they don't have them right now in mm-hmm. post-Soviet Russia that these are things that are gone, because these were really motivating for them, really enjoyable for them, and really important for them. As you saw in the, as I stated in the book, so let's talk about this aspect, they, people have desires for culture, you know, people want to listen to music, they want to read interesting books, they want to have interesting discussions, they want to enjoy theater, and all of these stuff. And they want to do so themselves. They want to play music. You know, my wife is in a choir here in the United States right now. <laughs> and my wife's dad was in you know, one of the people who was doing music production, who was actually, who, and the state paid for his instruments, and the state paid for his, uh, for the performance halls where he had performed and so on. You know, my wife is in the choir right now. She doesn't get that in the United States. The government is not paying for her to do this. She has to pay for this herself. And the Soviet Union was providing all of these things for its citizens. The government was. Now, people had this opportunity to have friendship, have leisure, have romantic bonds. You know, there were a lot of people 
with who I interviewed who told me about how they met their husbands or wives, partners, friends in these cultural activities. And they really enjoyed themselves. And this is an aspect of the Soviet Union that is fundamentally important to understand for us to really get how this country functioned and how other authoritarian states right now function. Because if we don't understand that, we are really going to make fundamentally mistaken impressions and bad decisions when we try to deal with these states. That's kind of a little bit of an aspect that I want to get us that we can talk about. So um, you mentioned that you interviewed uh, a lot of people who immigrated from uh, Russia to the States. Uh, But um, uh, well, what's the geographical segment that um, you mostly covered in your uh, research? I mean, for your for for your publication, it's primarily Soviet Russia. Yes, so Mm -hmm. primarily Soviet Russia. I compared two cities Mm -hmm. in Moscow, so the capital. Not to get that aspect. And then I went to Saratov, which is a city deep in Russia. It's sort of similar to the city where I live in right now, Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. kind of a, a mid-sized industrial capital that was important and representative of the Russian heartland. I also interviewed some people from other areas, from Ukraine and from Azerbaijan, but mainly I focused on those two cities as representative of the Soviet-Russian cultural tradition that was at least in the city area. I didn't go into into the countryside. So geographically, it's rather diverse, but still there were were similarities in terms of um, uh, social fund organization. Oh, yes, absolutely. The Soviet Union was very centralized in mm-hmm. the kind of activities it offered, mm-hmm. so it was standardized. Now, of course, each one was adapted to its unique context, so you'll find some diversity in country, in ethnic minority areas mm-hmm. and in the ethnic republics. So Azerbaijan was somewhat different than the Soviet heartland, and some of the western, more western areas would have some unique differences because they were close to Poland and so on. So well, could, could we talked about that a little bit, but you would have, they would still have the same type of things that were offered from the top and cultural policy was dictated to a large extent from the top and they had the same problems mm-hmm. across the Soviet Union with that were present in a variety of areas. Could you tell us at least one uh, difference or one modification um, in terms of these centralized programs or centralized decisions that was striking, at least to you? So one interesting thing that Mm -hmm. if you compare Moscow and Mm Sarada, so one of the things that was happening was that the Soviet Union authorities were trying to impose cultural restrictions, Mm -hmm. ideologically informed cultural restrictions on the kind of cultural activities that were permitted as part of the cultural production. So in times of more ideological militancy, especially under Stalin, so I covered the period from 45 to 1970, in 1948 there was a major campaign by Stalin to promote uh, a more ideologically militant perspective in the Soviet Union. Now, Moscow 
typically is a more liberal city mm-hmm. than the rest of the Soviet Union. And that's because kind of Moscow has more influence from the West. Mm-hmm. There are lots of visitors from the West in Moscow. However, during periods of ideological militancy, Moscow tended to be somewhat more conservative than the rest because Moscow had more control organ people, supervisors, checking in on various cultural activities in Moscow. So a difference between Moscow and Saratov is that in Saratov, during periods of ideological militancy, such as in the late 1940s and early 1950s, people can get away with more things in Saratov than they could in Moscow in many ways. So that was an interesting modification because of the government's lack of control resources that it chose not to waste, not to spend these control resources in Saratov. It chose to spend them more in Moscow. And so that's an interesting modification and a difference that was there in comparing Moscow and Saratov. So, I can talk about other regions as well, but that's kind of one interesting example. <laughs> was surprising to me. I didn't, I mean, this is something that I didn't expect I'd find. But thank you. Yeah. Uh, so you uh, dis- uh, you describe a lot of activities in terms of uh, leisure time uh, for the Soviet people. So would you would you describe just in general terms what those activities were? Um, you uh, um, bring up um, uh, different cafes and youth clubs and clubs of interest, and uh, there are a lot of sections that describe the development of music and especially um, in terms of jazz um, influences in the Soviet. Soviet Union. So would you would you tell us a little bit about those activities who were probably the most popular in the Soviet Union or those that were m- most engaging? Sure. That's uh, a good question. So let me talk a little bit about the structure and then get into uh, in-depth into mm-hmm. a couple of them. There were a number of various forms of activities. There were various musical activities, theatrical activities, dance activities, discussion and debate activities and uh, a whole host of hobby activities Mm -hmm. that were offered in these cultural institutions that the Soviet Union called clubs. Clubs were basically large buildings that had all of these sorts of activities where people can themselves go and create music for others, so amateur artists. They can go and do theater, they can go do amateur dancing, they can go and do, like I said, various hobbies, they, they can perform for other citizens in the club. Now, there were also professionals who came to clubs and did various forms of activities in clubs that professionals were hired, basically, to come. So it was a combination of things of amateurs and professionals. I focused more on amateur activities mm-hmm. because I was interested in how citizens collaborated with the authorities to create these sorts of activities. So that's the very broad structure of how this functioned. Now, the policy determining what kind of cultural activities were encouraged and allowed was determined from the top, but also shaped shaped from the bottom, from the top meaning from the authorities, mm-hmm. from the leadership. It was also shaped by people's interests from the bottom. So an interesting example would be that on, under Stalin especially, there was a lot of push for lectures, um, mm-hmm. ideologically informed lectures of various sorts uh, on a variety of topics. And the club leaders were hired by the state usually. So club officials, club uh, managers, they were called. They had a lot of trouble 
getting people to attend the lectures. Oh, okay. So you would have lecturers brought in and they would be spending money on bringing in lecturers, but the lecture room would be pretty empty. So they wouldn't really be making the money back that they thought. <laughs> so a really interesting thing is you can look at the club uh, plan the budget. So mm -hmm. they planned, you know, something like, uh, let's say, 20,000 rubles mm. to, uh, you know, spend on lectures and get the money back, be self-supported. <laughs> they ended up spending 20,000 rubles, but they got back something like three to thousand oh, or five thousand. I see. Because that, that's how many people actually went to lectures and paid for the lectures. So that's an example of how um, the state's policy coming from the top wasn't really met with enthusiasm from the bottom <laughs> and didn't really uh, result in what they wanted. Now, uh, let's, look at the, let's look at another end of the spectrum, dancing. Dancing was very popular, and the authorities at the top during times of ideological militancy, let's say under Stalin, there was more ideological militancy. The authorities wanted very strictly prescribed forms of dancing, ballroom dancing of various mm -hmm. sorts, for example. And but the club managers wanted to make money to make up for the lectures that were losing money. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say you know we can say that um, they had a similar budget of twenty thousand for dancing. So to bring in bands, uh, get equipment, bring in professional bands, or get amateur bands from the club uh, people who came to the club and did music for the club. Now they they had a choice. They can do either ballroom dances, mm -hmm. and they knew that they would get relatively few people to come to ballroom dances. Or they can do more jazz-style Western dances, which they knew would fill up the room. So when uh, they took the risk, uh, many club managers took the risk of doing jazz-style dances that filled up the room. And so you could see budgets saying, well, we planned to get 20000 back we plan to spend 20000 get 20000 back, let's say. And you could see a budget that says, well, we spent 20000 and we got 50,000 rubles. Now, that was, uh, then you have to suspect, were they really doing ballroom dances? And the answer, you know, is no. <laughs> they weren't doing ballroom dances. They wouldn't get $50,000 doing ballroom dances. They would only get that money if they did jazz-style dances. And they filled up the rooms to capacity. People were having fun and doing various Western dances. Uh, you have reports from control organs going around and saying, hey, this club, the Moscow uh, factory club, uh, whatever, was doing, was doing jazz dances instead of ballroom dances. How scandalous. And condemning, condemning these things. So here's the, the opposite end of the spectrum. And this, these jazz dances, which were not ideologically, quote-unquote, good, mm -hmm. were making up for the ideologically pure lectures, which didn't bring in nearly enough people. Mm -hmm. So you can see how people's enthusiasm, their desires for the actual jazz dances and lack of desire for lectures mm -hmm. shaped the policy, shaped what kind of activities actually went on in the clubs, mm -hmm. despite... What some what during periods of ideological militancy under Stalin, what the authorities wanted. Mm -hmm. So jazz was very popular in the Soviet Union, and uh, you covering almost uh, um, 
uh, 30 years in your research, 1945-1970, but jazz was present at all these um, stages. However, um, at some uh, stages it was more suppressed, at some other stages it was less suppressed. And uh, in the 60s, I believe, uh, there was some major jazz festival as well, and... Uh, um, it, it looked like some Soviet form of jazz developed. Could you tell us a little about this jazz development in the Soviet Union? Sure. So the narrative of jazz development was that uh, jazz in the late 1930s was suppressed in the Soviet Union under Stalin. There was a period of ideological militancy. In World War II, when there was a time, there was a need to lift popular mood and gain legitimacy, Stalin allowed jazz once again. And there was a lot of jazz bands, Soviet jazz bands, they were playing the latest Western dances. It was a time of alliance with America and so on, which is the main source of jazz. And uh, then after World War II, increasingly the Cold War started, and especially in 1945, there was the campaign against cosmopolitanism mm -hmm. that I mentioned earlier, the ideological campaign. Cosmopolitanism was a code word for Western, for a combination of two things, Western influence and Jewish influence. So, which were not the same thing, but they were kind of combined together as the Soviet Union turned against Israel and again turned against the United States and the West, and there was the Cold War developing. That was a time when jazz was suppressed. And Jazz being suppressed doesn't mean that there wasn't any jazz. It was just ideologically prescribed, proscribed, condemned. Now, clubs in the Soviet Union that wanted people to actually attend various dances would still do jazz. Mm -hmm. But they faced the risk of ideological persecution. So that's when you got Moscow, which had more control organs. And by control organs, I mean inspectors, physical inspectors who went around and inspected clubs for the kind of music that they were playing. That's when you had uh, less opportunities in Moscow to do jazz things, and to dance various Western dances than you had in places like Saratov, mm -hmm. which is quite surprising again for many people. They would think that Saratov is more quote-unquote backward than Moscow, but this was a time when Moscow was more quote-unquote, backward than Sarata mm -hmm. in many ways. So, after Stalin, you had uh, the Khrushchev and Khrushchev liberalized policy in the Soviet Union toward culture and many other things, and you had more jazz, more tolerance for jazz and Western-style dances coming back in. Now, at first, the Khrushchev regime only allowed forms of jazz that were still part that were popular in the United States in the 1930s, mm. swing-style jazz and so on, but not more modern jazz. Mm. And um, I can go into the distinctions between this if you sure. ask me sure. later, yes. but I won't uh, right now. Mm -hmm. So then uh, there was a big event in the Soviet Union in 1957, the Moscow International Youth Festival, which is the first time that some jazz bands you know, came to Moscow there were a couple of jazz bands that uh, in 1956 came to Ukraine, but in 1957, a number of jazz bands came to Moscow, and this was like a very popular event. Now, after the event, the festival, there was a period of backlash because uh, 
not received or went too far, and there was some suppression of jazz and Western dances, not nearly as much as under Stalin. And that's, again, when you had a little bit more leeway in Saratov than you had in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Now, in the late 1950s, the regime realized that, that that wasn't a good idea to suppress jazz, and there was more of a turn to, again, jazz and Western dances, more modern style, in the early 1950s, in the late 1950s and early 1960s. That's when you had the development of youth cafes, which were a, a Western-style form, which combined coffee, uh, light snacks, <laughs> and jazz music and various other cultural activities. They started up in Moscow and a couple of other major cities. They began. They became very popular and soon spread throughout the Soviet Union. And again, you had a lot of other cultural things. In the late, in the mid nineteen sixties, not mid nineteen sixty two, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm-hmm. Khrushchev again had a period of more conservatism, and there was some more suppression. wasn't nearly as strong as in the nineteen fifty eight nineteen fifty nine period after the Moscow Youth Festival. And then under Brezhnev, you actually had quite a bit of cultural tolerance. This will surprise many people, but Brezhnev actually allowed quite a bit of cultural tolerance for rock, jazz, and so on. Rock was coming into the Soviet Union in this period. So he was quite tolerant of this. In the mid-1960s, you had again a period of ideological conservatism in the late 1968 and onward following the Czechoslovak invasion, so the Prague Spring. And that's kind of where I finish up the book. Mm-hmm. So, um, as you described the development of leisure time activities, um, it looks like uh, the policies uh, for the organization of uh, leisure time for the Soviet uh, Union for the Soviet Union were somehow defining the consciousness of Soviet people and defining the concept of a new Soviet man and Soviet woman, and uh, these concepts for the Stalin era. Um, were different from the concepts that were developed during the Khrushchev era or uh, during the Brezhnev era? Mm-hmm. Yes. And the, the main difference uh, would be uh, the um, uh, isolationism priority for Stalin and more cosmopolitan for Khrushchev and probably some stagnation for Brezhnev. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you have this idea under so let's talk a little bit about Khrushchev. Mm-hmm. Uh, so under Stalin, well, let's, since Stalin was earlier, under Stalin, Stalin wanted young men and women to really be in many ways, I wouldn't say like himself, that's a little bit uh, not the right term. He wanted them to be very disciplined, uh-huh. very controlled. He wanted them to be ideologically pure. Mm. And this did not match, you know, this is the period of lectures that were attended by few people mm-hmm. and uh, you know, dance dances which were attended by large amounts of people. Now, Khrushchev had a different perspective. He wanted, he didn't, he wasn't a nearly as top-down. He wanted people to show much more initiative. Mm-hmm. So the ideal man and woman would show much more initiative much more, um, I would say, excitement, much more, a lot of enthusiasm and energy Mm -hmm. to construct the future, but also a much larger role in it. Mm -hmm. 
in defining this future. So initiative and initiative and taking their own actions and a voice in defining what the future of the Soviet Union would look like and be like, and also have their own desires be satisfied. So have their desires for cultural consumption be satisfied. And that was the crucial vision of the ideal Soviet man and woman. Now, under Brezhnev, you had a bit of a change. You still had the desire for people's... You had you still had policy which called for people's desires to be satisfied, mm -hmm. but people were not were discouraged from taking initiative to do so, and they were discouraged from feeling like they shaped the future. Mm -hmm. So it was more of a turn toward giving people what they want, but without people taking initiative and without people having a say in shaping the future mm -hmm. and shaping these cultural missions. So this would be the transformation in the ideal man and woman going from Stalin to Brezhnev. I see. So um, you extensively describe music activities and theater activities in your research, and um, you touch upon uh, uh, book clubs a little bit. Maybe those were not book clubs, but like clubs where people could discuss some literary works. But um, um, it doesn't look like this kind of sphere was very uh, uh, widely spread in the Soviet Union. Is that is that correct, that book uh, culture, in spite of the fact that uh, Soviet people People were encouraged to read uh, a lot just to be educated. Um, open discussions of books were not that very popular. I again, in spite of the fact that literary studies um, uh, was always some sort of a, a tool for uh, shaping some kind of thinking and some kind of memories for the Soviet people. So what are your findings on book clubs and book discussions in the Soviet Union? So, book clubs and book discussions were somewhat controversial mm -hmm. in that they might uh, inspire <laughs> discussions that were bad from the perspective of the authorities. Right. So, book clubs really took off under Khrushchev, mm -hmm. and there were a number of book clubs of various sorts. I didn't go into them in depth because some other people covered them mm -hmm. when they had their own uh, research and that's cited in the book. I did talk about some book clubs. I had interviews with librarians, with mm -hmm. book club organizers who talked about um, various book clubs which uh, had some, which diverged in some ways from what the authorities would have liked the book mm -hmm. club to look like. So, for example, there was one book club that had people coming, like the Strugatsky brothers, mm -hmm. and giving lectures on topics that okay. were deviating from the official Soviet regime's mm -hmm. desired topics. Another interesting thing would be, beside book clubs, there were, under Khrushchev, some of the boring lectures that were held under Stalin were transformed into debates mm -hmm. and discussions which were much more engaging for the audience and yet much bigger attendance. Mm -hmm. So there was an effort under Khrushchev to just to both have more book clubs and have more discussion and debate-style activities. And that's why book clubs, I think, became more popular mm -hmm. as opposed to 
lectures about books, which would be more of the style of what happened under Stalin. Mm-hmm. Did the popularity of those books, uh, book clubs, um, subside uh, after the Khrushchev era? You know, I, it's hard for me to tell because I didn't go into the Brezhnev era mm-hmm, in depth I enough mm-hmm. to talk about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, um, that's, that, that's a very interesting um, observation about the differences uh, between the um, uh, Stalin era and Brezhnev era and, uh, and of course, the Khrushchev era offers some new uh, insights into the uh, entertainment uh, sphere. Uh, and you also note that... Um, um, during all these stages, people were uh, participating quite voluntarily in all these activities. However, they, at some stages or at some points, they, there was a gap between um, people's preferences and interests and between government's requirements. So um, what caused that gap? Well, I think that you already touched upon this gap a little bit when uh, speaking about the, the Stalin's era, that Stalin was uh, promoting his kind of um, ideology concerning the organization of activities that they should be based on lectures um, and uh, people were probably more interested in uh, some fun activities like dancing and uh, singing and theater performances. However, maybe this gap uh, was conveying some um, uh, other messages uh, about um, how people were perceiving the um, policies that were imposed on them. And so what, um, uh, w- w- what's your insight on that? I don't think that people were so concerned about the policies mm-hmm. the government was imposing on them. They mm-hmm. weren't thinking about these in their everyday lives. They were more thinking about the kind of opportunities that were open to them or not. Mm-hmm. You know, the ordinary person on the street doesn't tend to spend too much time thinking mm-hmm. about government policy, especially if she or he can't change it. Mm-hmm. They spend... they. It's much more, I found in my research, that they tend to vote with their feet. They tend to either attend lectures or not attend lectures. Mm -hmm. Either attend dances or not attend dances. Either attend cultural performances and theatrical performances or not attend them. And that gives you a really good grasp through people's actual actions, what they actually do in their daily lives and what they care about. Because all of our lives, you know, so this is kind of some of the behavioral science research that I talk about Mm -hmm. and people's emotions. I spend quite a bit of time talking about people's emotions and their motivations. You can really see what people care about through their actions. That's the only really deep way to see what they care about. People can say a lot of stuff. You know, people can say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Oh, not in the Soviet Union, but you know what I mean. Uh, You can generally say, oh, this is what I care about. This is outrageous, or this is not outrageous, or, you know, this is great. But until people take action, that doesn't really mean anything in any deep way. You can see people taking action by whether they attended these activities or not, by whether they participated or not, by whether they engaged or not. Mm -hmm. And this is how you can see at a really deep level their extent of support for the Soviet state or the Soviet authorities, whether they participated in these official activities how enthusiastic they were about them and you know when they didn't participate in them and when they weren't enthusiastic Mm -hmm. that tells you quite a lot about whether the activities offered by the government by the authorities met with people's approval or not so you also put uh, the conversation about um 
um, cultural sphere uh, in the context of um, uh, gardening states and uh, about uh, policies that the government um, uh, designed to uh, garden the populace. So would you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So one of the really important things about the policies in each case was that the Soviet Union was trying to garden or shape mm-hmm. its citizens into its desired uh, outcome. So you think of, this is a metaphor, and it basically describes the state as the gardener who is trying to shape the population or the garden into its ideal environment. So you can think of the Stalin regime as a very authoritarian gardener who was kind of very mm-hmm. strictly pruning the plants, and a lot of plants uh, withered and died under Stalin, and they weren't really enthusiastic. They didn't really grow in the way that Stalin wanted. Now, mm-hmm. they didn't grow out of control too much, but they didn't grow nearly, they didn't flourish nearly as much as Stalin wanted. Under Khrushchev, there was much more uh, letting plants be. Mm-hmm. Garden. There was less shaping, there was less cutting off, but there, was, there were a number of restrictions, but there was much less cutting off. Uh, and as a result, plants grew much more, and people engaged in much more cultural activities, which let the government shape their activities in the way that the government wanted in more loose ways. For example, people uh, under Stalin did a lot of leisure activities outside of the government's provision. You know, I had conversations with people who talked about how under Stalin they ran around the streets in groups, kind of, you know, the, the, these were teenagers. They had these sorts of gangs mm-hmm. and they were just hung out on street corners and they kind of fought with each other and they had various drinking parties uh, outside of the state supervision. So mm-hmm. not within the official culture, you know, garden of the state. Now, What Khrushchev did is he brought a lot of these leisure activities within the supervision space of the state because you you didn't change the number of people. What he did was he got them into official state settings and he got them various instruments. He got them various um, spaces where they could participate, guidance, professional training. And so these people were happy to get this. Mm -hmm. And in return, they were happy to stay within state settings and abide by a number of rules and guidelines that were posed by the regime. So this was like a sort of a trade-off. It's it's a win-win situation for both, where the state got to shape the leisure activities of its citizens and have them engage in leisure activities in supervised settings, and at the same time, these citizens were grateful to the state for providing these leisure activities in supervised settings, and the state was able to convey some ideological messages to them where they couldn't really understand and when these people hung out on the streets and beat each other up for fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, uh, so the Khrushchev regime did that differently. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the gardening that I talk about mm-hmm. in the book. And what about the Brezhnev era? So the Brezhnev era was an interesting phenomenon where the state provided much more, the state still provided a lot of money, mm-hmm. and even more money than under Khrushchev, to cultural activities. 
but the state suppressed mm -hmm. a lot of the initiative that people can take. It didn't, it basically satisfied consumption desires, mm -hmm. but it really lowered buy-in. Mm -hmm. So people couldn't shape their activities nearly as much as they did under Crucia. Mm -hmm. And you can see the numbers of participation going down under Brezhnev. So people weren't participating as much. They were they preferred to do more leisure activities in private settings. So you can see how that's how they still participated quite a bit because they still had instruments and so on, but they had less of a say in the kind of things they could do. And they you have you had much more professional trainers who were in charge of clubs, in charge of music activities, than you had people amateurs themselves. Mm -hmm. So you again you had less participation, people had less fun and enjoyment, and there were more private contexts. Mm -hmm. People retreated more into private contexts under Brezhnev. So if I read your research correctly, uh, Brezhnev curtailed those programs that were launched by Khrushchev and actually this kind of uh, um, change led to some negative consequences, to some negative effects uh, that uh, had uh, more consequences um, at a bigger level uh, for the Soviet Union in general and probably for the future fate of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Yes, so there were it definitely had consequences for the future fate of the Soviet Union because people, while they, while their consumption, cultural consumption desires mm -hmm. were satisfied, still satisfied at their vision, their desires to shape their activities were not. So they had less buy-in. They retreated more into public space, into private spaces. Under Khrushchev, they were much more engaged in the public project of building communism, and they were willing to sacrifice their time and efforts and volunteer activities, they were, this was essentially a volunteer civic engagement activity. This was a Soviet civic space, and they were willing to do that, and they were enthusiastic about doing it, and they were thus enthusiastic about the Soviet project of building communism. They saw this as part of building communism, the transition from socialism to communism. Under Brezhnev, there was a change where essentially the Brezhnev regime had this sort of social contract where it said, where it's told people, well, no, right now you don't really have much of a voice mm -hmm. in actually shaping your own cultural activities, but we'll give you a lot of money in terms of cultural consumption, a lot of entertainment options, and so on. So there was more of a focus on entertainment and less on building communism, less on civic engagement, and so on. And thus, people were expecting more and more cultural consumption, and they were less and less enthusiastic about the Soviet project as a whole. It became less of a ideal, less of a socialist modernity mm -hmm. and transformed more into a capitalist consumerist state. And so this was a transformation which really undermined the whole ideological basis of the Soviet project. It's more the question was, well, what are we fighting for? What are we doing here? Mm -hmm. Why should we care about the whole state, about the whole society? We'll just retreat into our own private spaces and we'll just be enjoying our own personal leisure activities mm -hmm. and not really caring about the, the broader state mm -hmm. and the broader society. So that was a transformation informed in part by the Brezhnev shift to curtailing the initiative of and the buy-in of people.
people in cultural activities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, you also uh, put your discussion of uh, the culture sphere in the context of alternative versions of modernity. And could you tell us just a couple of words about um, your theory uh, about the USSR as an alternative version of modernity? And uh, in the beginning of your research, you're talking about various kinds of modernities. Excellent. Sure, of course. So, modernity is simply a way of living a modern life that's perceived by people broadly as really modern, progressive, and so on. So, that's the concept of modernity. The Soviet Union was trying to build a modernity, a modern way of life, that was different from the United States. So, it was going to be different from the capitalist way of modernity, from the capitalist way of life. Instead, it was going to present a unique socialist way of life. And this was especially the case under Khrushchev, where Khrushchev was trying to compete with the Western way of life. Now, Stalin was as well, but Stalin was much more oriented toward building a modernity within the Soviet Union itself. Khrushchev, what Khrushchev did was he said, no, we will try to build a socialist modernity and try to proclaim it to the whole world and say, tell the whole world that our way of life is better than the Western way of life. And one of the ways the Soviet Union did so was through cultural activities. It said, well, hey, there in the West, you have to pay for all of your own cultural activities and only the relatively well-off can afford, can afford to do this. Here in the Soviet Union, Everyone can participate. Look, you know, person on the street, working class citizen, peasant, farmer, as well as uh, people who are working, who are white collar workers can afford this. And we don't, we have so many people, we have millions, millions, millions of people who are actually not simply cultural consumers. That was another big issue for Khrushchev. They're cultural producers, they're amateur mm -hmm. artists. So they were trying to sell the socialist version of modernity to the whole world as uh, informed by the fact that people can both afford to enjoy, be entertained by cultural production, and they can be cultural producers who can shape their own cultural production, who can take initiative. Mm. And this was something that they promoted quite widely and was quite popular in a number of uh, developing countries, which was the major stage of competition between the Soviet Union and Western countries, between the socialist bloc and the capitalist bloc, was the developing countries. So they were promoting these, this to these countries, and they talk about quite a bit in the book about visitors from all sorts of countries, which were taken to Soviet clubs and which were, uh, who were made, who enjoyed these sorts of activities, and who engaged in these sorts of activities and were enthusiastic about them. So these were a form of demonstration of selling the socialist alternative modernity to visitors who were, in, who were coming in. And of course, I also talk about how the Soviet Union sent out to various cultural festivals outside mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union people to demonstrate these sorts of amateur activities. And were those people somehow prepared before they went abroad? Oh, yes, they were prepared. Uh, so people who uh, went out usually tended to be kind of the best of the best, mm -hmm. winners of various competitions, mm -hmm. and they were quite prepared with state authorities 
telling them how they should talk, how they should walk, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, how they should behave when they went abroad. And there were a number of problems with them going abroad, including defections, which I talk about in the book, which um, you know, cost Soviet Union reputation. But overall, the Soviet Union thought, under Khrushchev at least, this was quite a good idea. Mm -hmm. This was curtailed under Brezhnev. Mm -hmm. But under Khrushchev, this was thought as a quite good idea and something that was raising the Soviet reputation. And indeed it was. There were, I have a number of descriptions in the book. So I went to the U.S. archives, the U.S. diplomatic archives, mm -hmm. the U.S. archives in Washington. And there are a number of reports from U.S. diplomats who were worried about the positive impact of the Soviet cultural program on visiting dignitaries from developing countries. Mm -hmm. So, which shows that, you know, this is something that was quite worrisome and quite effective by the Soviet Union. I see. So, well, it looks like um, socialist fun was indeed serious business. <laughs> um, indeed it was. Indeed it was. Thank you so much for your fascinating research. And uh, it was very, very intriguing when I just uh, um, discovered uh, your uh, publication. And when I was sharing my news with my uh, friends, uh, telling them that I will be interviewing you on your recent publication, Socialist Fund, they were very surprised and they were saying, well, uh, we're Soviet people having uh, were Soviet people doing something for fun really <laughs> so thank you so much for this um, um, fascinating research so if you don't mind um, could you tell us a couple of words about your recent research what are you working on right now sure so right now I am working on a couple of things and thank you uh, I, I indeed think that the, your interactions with the people that you described <laughs> really illustrates the importance of this book and why yeah, it, it needs to be there and why people need to understand and read the, how any authoritarian regime, including the Soviet Union, is only able to hang together because it provides some satisfaction for its citizens. So in terms of my current work, I'm working on two things. One project I'm working on is Soviet civic groups of various sorts, especially volunteer militia groups. So this was another aspect of Soviet volunteerism, which I didn't really cover in the book, but I wanted to cover. Uh, and that's Soviet volunteer patrols by people who went around and kept order. Hmm. And so this is something, again, an aspect of Soviet engagement, of the authorities engaging in civic collaboration with its citizens, but this time not for fun purposes, but for purposes of order and discipline. So how Soviet citizens helped the authorities maintain order and discipline in the Soviet Union. Mm. So to really get at this more authoritarian aspect and the citizens' collaboration participation in it. Mm -hmm. That sounds so fascinating. Yes, so that's one aspect of my work. Another thing I'm doing is a trade publication, so mm -hmm. a book for a broad audience that's focused more on American politics right now mm -hmm. and is using behavioral science to address deceptions and lies in our in the American political system. Mm -hmm. And it's called The Alternative to Alternative Facts, Fighting Post-True <laughs> Politics with Behavioral Science. So I'm using the research on behavioral science that I gained in the Soviet Union, the broader context on authoritarianism, deceptions, lies in the Soviet Union that I gained in the during my research to apply it to the current context in the United States and see how to address the lies and deceptions that we see in our current post-true political system 
and move it forward to a post-slice political system. <laughs> well, I wish you good luck on your new uh, projects. And again, Gip, uh, thank you so much for your fascinating research and for this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Natalia. It was a pleasure.